I think most people, if you surveyed them, Lily, Mm -hmm. I think they don't realize that protein is a nutrient-dense food. I don't think they know that. Get your chronometer app on your iPhone or on your Android, put in a protein source and compare that to pick any other food and check out the nutrients that you're getting in that. But but why is it as a, especially pregnant women, especially women pursuing a healthier lifestyle, why is protein so misunderstood? This is Living Your Big Bold Life Podcast, and I am your host, Bette Lucas. I am a mom of six crazy kids, I work as a VP in a fast-paced industry, and I've been on a health journey. But what does living your big, bold life even mean? Living boldly is having the courage to finally listen and do what your heart has been trying to tell you all along. Maybe it's to take back your health, write the book, go for the job, run the race. And I'm here to help you listen to that voice and to remind you to be you boldly. The world needs you. Welcome to Living Your Big Bold Life Podcast. I am your host, Bette Lucas, and this morning it is such a breath of fresh air to be joined by a fellow mom who, like me, we were laughing before this interview that our kids are often trying to like break down all the doors to uh, access us. And it's a rainy day, I guess, where Lily, our amazing guest is. And so uh, we're joking that uh, it's making us be extra creative on <laughs> recording this, <laughs> this morning. But um, I told her that listeners I know can relate, but Geez, what an honor it is to have Lily Nichols here. Many of you, I believe, follow her already on Instagram or through her website, but I just think Lily is someone who is really blazing trails in a lot of ways, and I find her voice, like I said, a breath of fresh air. And this episode, yes, is going to be a little bit more towards pregnancy and gestational diabetes, possibly breastfeeding. We might tackle all of those things, but I really believe there are many of Lily's perspectives, much of which are research-based and research-focused, that could apply to you in your health journey. And that, as you know, is really my goal. I will always have specific guests, specific topics, but I hope you could walk away no matter who you are and say, gosh, I just gleaned a lot of tools for my tool belt. So I cannot wait for you guys all to get to know Lily Nichols better because I know I'm going to enjoy today too. So welcome, Lily. Thank you so much for inviting me. Lily, as I mentioned in the in the intro, is a registered dietitian and nutritionist. Uh, uh, she's a certified diabetes educator, researcher. She's an author. I can't wait to talk about her books as well. But Lily, as we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about you? I know people just really enjoy getting to know who they're listening to and maybe a little bit about your work, but your family and where you live, all the things. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, as you learned from my bio, my 
focus really is on nutrition as it relates to the childbearing years. Although my books are about specifically pregnancy and gestational diabetes, these same nutrition principles hold true for preconception, for optimizing fertility, for postpartum recovery and breastfeeding. And they apply to your partner as well, by the way. So I have a saying that real food is real food because although I tend to, you know, throw in a lot of citations to research about how and why this specific food or nutrient are beneficial to this life stage, you can make the same case for virtually any life stage. So um, real food is real food. It's always beneficial to your health wherever you're starting, even if you're starting at, you know, 39 weeks pregnant and still still of benefit. I've really spent most of my career as a dietitian in the prenatal space, done a lot of work in the gestational diabetes space as well. And I've really had an interesting look at prenatal nutrition from many different vantage points, not only my own two pregnancies, but working with pregnant women for many years, working at the public policy level with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, which is more... Um, conversationally known as the Sweet Success Program, and then also consulted on a lot of different research projects. I do speaking and training for healthcare professionals via the Women's Health Nutrition Academy um, and other organizations that hire me to speak. And so I've seen it from like the policy angle where you're working on guidelines to actually working with clients, like how do those guidelines work in real life, to experiencing it firsthand, to hearing from all these other practitioners that I've had the pleasure of uh, mentoring on their journey to do this type of work. And, you know, at the end of the day, it really brings home the fact that like, we have so much room for improvement <laughs> on, mm-hmm. on our guidelines for uh, pregnancy, especially. And we can do so much more to like optimize our chances of conception our a positive experience of pregnancy with, you know, more manageable symptoms and fewer complications or less severe complications, you know, healthier baby, easier postpartum recovery, easier breastfeeding journey, ultimately a healthier child, you know, where we can optimize their development, their brain development and whatnot. So I find that a lot of my work is kind of filling in the gaps where I feel the guidelines fall short. You know, there's a 17 year gap on average from new research to make it into clinical practice and even longer for that to influence uh, nutrition guidelines. So I'm at the point where I take it like to the grassroots level. It's like, let me get the information out to the people and out to practitioners Um, so we can kind of shorten, like lessen that gap. It's going to take a while for the guidelines to be updated to reflect the new research on protein or choline or vitamin B12, for example. And so like, if I can get that information out, we can like drastically improve a whole, like essentially generation by, by getting that information in the hands of, you know, moms and families and healthcare providers. Yeah, Lily, it was interesting as I started following you and getting to know uh, kind of some of your perspectives. I believe you posted one time, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you did almost a survey on how many women when they were pregnant were ever asked about their nutrition. The feedback you got was really shocking that so few are, so many are looking for answers on their fertility journey, on their pregnancy journey, on their postpartum journey. And yet this huge component isn't really talked about. And I love how you're kind of 
like you said, you're kind of trying to fill the gaps of something that, in my opinion, is is so needed. Absolutely. And, you know, for better or for worse, this is just sort of the case with the way we approach prenatal care in this country and the way that nutrition education is handled by medical schools. Very few medical schools actually have much information about nutrition. It's it's rare if they get even one class, one three credit class on nutrition. And you can imagine that doesn't go very in depth. If in comparison, somebody like myself has five years, that's just in like the formal education of like an undergraduate degree in nutrition and a dietetic internship in a clinical setting. And so if you only have one three credit class, I mean, you take like 12 to 15 credits a semester in school, right? That's not very much. No, that is not very much much information, right? (laughs) Um, And the information they have is often incomplete. And as I've alluded to, often outdated. So typically the advice you get in, you know, a conventional healthcare setting unless it's a place that's employing somebody who really specializes in prenatal nutrition, which is sometimes the case. And I've worked in those capacities. It's really wonderful when OBs can can bring on a nutritionist or dietitian. But usually the information you're given is, you know, avoid alcohol, limit your caffeine, um, take your prenatal vitamin, and then you might be handed like a pamphlet on uh, foods to avoid for food safety reasons. And, and that's really it. Um, there's not a lot more that's given out. And what I found is people really want more information. I, I didn't really set out when I was doing my, each of my books were like inspired by kind of my annoyance of being asked over and over again for the same type of information or having to debunk the same outdated information. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get this, get this out into the world because we could do so much better. And it's like, no, there's actually evidence to say that that's incorrect. And in fact, you should be doing XYZ, and this is why, and this is the research that backs up that statement, um, was really to just, you know, there is a need and there is a want. You never find a more uh, motivated clientele than pregnant women. Like, never. Ain't Every, that the truth? <laughs> yeah, they want to do everything they can, whether whether their symptoms allow them to do that. Like first trimester, you, you get a free pass if you're, you know, nauseous or having food aversions or whatever. You might really in your mind want to do something and then physically can't. So I just want to give a shout out to anybody who's in that phase. Um, it usually does pass or lessen over time. Um, but once you're in like feel good mode, like solidly into the second trimester and food sounds good again, they're, they're really motivated and they just like, they were unable to find reliable information on it. And that, that's why my books are here. It's just like, let's fill this gap. It's so frustrating to me to see people sort of grasping for straws for answers and not be able to find reliable information. Yeah, I am just so grateful for your work. And I can't wait for more and more people to kind of find you and and read your books. And so let's dive into some of your bold perspectives uh, and thoughts around these different stages. And I guess let's go in order. Uh, Let's talk a little bit fertility. Uh, What are some of your bold perspectives and bold advice you have for those who may be starting their parenting journey, maybe exploring it, or who may be struggling? What are some things that you would like to share based on research you've done and the many, many clients out there that you've helped? Well, first of all, 
I think the onus of um, fertility tends to fall on women when it's actually a, it's a two way street here. So man, the, the man's diet also matters. Their health also matters. And so I think I should highlight that first and foremost, because once you get into the pregnancy realm, really that's on mom. Right. Um, So in the fertility space, we do want to be thinking about the fact that both, egg quality and sperm quality are absolutely influenced by food and lifestyle factors. And we do need to be thinking about, again, if you have the luxury of planning a pregnancy, because not everybody is, is really, um, there's a lot of unplanned pregnancies out there. So if you have the luxury of planning, um, focusing on both you and your partner's health is really important and it can improve both egg and sperm quality, improve chances of conception, um, reduce the risk of certain complications, including miscarriage or neural tube defects or congenital heart defects. These are things that are actually influenced by nutrition and lifestyle factors. Um, So I guess my bold perspective there is to think about both partners, not just the woman. When it comes to actually what does improve your fertility, there's a ton of overlap with fertility improvement, hormone balance, improving chances of conception and maintaining your health during pregnancy, as well as like rebuilding your nutrient stores postpartum. Like the, it's the same nutritional stuff for different reasons. Okay. It's the same for like avoiding, you know, hormone disrupting chemicals. Like that's important during the fertility preconception phase for different, but related reasons to why it's important during pregnancy Again, related to the ways to why it's important postpartum, especially if you're breastfeeding, and thus you can transfer toxins and things you're exposed to via your breast milk. Like it's all important for different reasons at different stages. But the most important things would be really building up the micronutrient intake in your diet. And that refers to your vitamins and minerals. So um, especially things like folate and vitamin B12, choline, which is a B vitamin-like compound, Um, You get most of those things in your protein-rich foods. Uh, You also get your folate in like leafy greens and legumes, but the number one source is actually liver, which surprises people. Those nutrients really support egg quality and sperm quality, and we have a lot of data on that. There's also a ton of minerals that are really important for these processes as well, like iodine, zinc, and copper, magnesium, you name it. There's a role for these minerals in maintaining uh, fertility and hormone balance. So I really try to focus on getting people to consume a, a higher proportion of their diet from these micronutrient-dense foods, um, let the cards fall where they're where they may with macronutrients that's actually become less of a focus of of mine in recent years um because if you hit your micros you're going to hit your macros too (laughs) like it's just it doesn't really matter you can have a wide range of different macronutrient intakes some people really thrive on low carb some people need a more moderate carb intake if they're you know, much more athletic or whatnot. It's really about like prioritize your protein, prioritize your micronutrients, um, don't overly restrict fat and like better quality carbs. And that goes such a long way for improving fertility. Gosh, there's so much I want to talk about here. Okay, so we could go in so many directions, but number one, uh, we are doing a 100 day challenge and through my Facebook group. 
And one of the first things I'm encouraging people during this 100 days is to build your plate around a protein because that really changed my whole trajectory on my health journey. And what I was finding is my protein was an afterthought. And it wasn't always, I wasn't always building around it. I guess looking back, I'm trying to think, why was that? Why didn't I, I think it's twofold. It's the, the busy mom snacking, not really sitting down, even, you know, focusing on a nutritious, good meal. But I think the other component, and I love your thoughts on this, is that I think most people, if you surveyed them, Lily, I think they don't realize that protein is a nutrient dense food. I don't yes. think they know that. What? Why is that? Why is there <laughs> such a? Why is there such a misunderstanding that if you put and anyone could do this, you know, get your chronometer app on your iPhone or yep. on your Android, put in a protein source and compare that to pick any other food. And yep. check out the nutrients that you're getting in that. But but why is it as a, especially pregnant women, especially women pursuing a healthier lifestyle, why is protein so misunderstood? Oh man, it goes all the way back to the 60s and 70s and ultimately like our 1980s dietary guidelines that made people fearful unnecessarily of saturated fat and cholesterol. I believe that's that's where it comes from. And that's because your at least your animal sourced foods, which are your richest sources of proteins, all come packaged with saturated fat and cholesterol. So if you put the scarlet letter on saturated fat and cholesterol, now we have the separate issue of people talking about, you know, environmental concerns with raising livestock and the very unsustainable and environmentally damaging uh, way of confined animal feeding operations and whatnot. I'm not going to say that's not an issue, but everybody lumps meat or eggs with the yolks into this, that's bad for me because it has saturated fat and cholesterol. Some people refer to this as nutritionism, where you're like picking out a single nutrient or a group of nutrients that are either good or bad, and then, you know, either elevating or like decimating the importance of anything that contains that. So I think protein has unfortunately been subject to our, you know, oh, that's not good for me. I shouldn't eat too much meat. I shouldn't eat too much red meat. Um, It's all based on really flawed data, unfortunately. And if you look at it instead from a micronutrient perspective, you can see firsthand that meat, especially red meat, and even more than that, organ meats are our most nutrient-dense foods. So I love chronometer. I'm glad you mentioned it. Look up steak. Look up oysters. Look up liver. Look up eggs. Look at the levels of B vitamins, of choline, of DHA, of minerals, um, and compare that to an orange. Not that an orange is bad. Orange has like vitamin C and bioflavonoids and other great things, but you're not going to find near the nutrient density in something that has always had a health halo like fruit, as you find in these uh, protein-rich foods. And I think people's fears around saturated fat and cholesterol have been, you know, fueled by, uh, you know, flawed epidemiology, which is not anything that's epidemiology where you're following like, okay, 
this group of people did this and there was this outcome. Like those types of studies are there to generate hypotheses. And then you need to look via clinical studies, hopefully as controlled as possible, um, to control for intake of that particular factor that you think is a problem. And the clinical studies on saturated fat and cholesterol have not bore out to support the original idea that it was that it was harmful to our health and in fact when you get your saturated fat from whole foods like whole fat dairy products and beef and chocolate those were three that were specifically called out in a study finding that it actually didn't have a negative effect on our cardiovascular risk factors and there's something about you know the saturated fat being found within this healthful food matrix full of micronutrients that it's not associated with, um, you know, problematic cardiovascular markers. So we need to like really, unfortunately, um, do a little extra digging on like unwinding these years and years and years of what, what I now see as like incorrect nutritional dogma or rather propaganda that have had us like shun our most nutrient dense foods. Um, and that doesn't even get into the research on like, where the recommended daily allowances are set for protein and how those are really to prevent like overt deficiency, but do not support optimal health really at all life stages, but even more importantly, for optimizing fertility and optimizing pregnancy outcomes, like a 2015 study and I'll, I'll stop after this because I know I'm going on like a giant tangent here, but there was a 2015 study, which was the first ever study to directly estimate protein requirements in pregnant women. Meaning prior to that, it was all based on data from non-pregnant women or from men. In that study, they found that third trimester protein requirements are actually 73% higher than the guidelines have told us. It's not like a 5% margin margin of error. When you're 73% off, that's a big deal. (laughs) So so women actually need to be eating more protein um, than they think they need. And I've written about this, you know, in in my books. I I also have a, a detailed blog post on protein requirements in pregnancy. I recommend people read it doesn't even get into like all the different individual amino acids and, and the data now telling us that there's no such thing as non-essential amino acids. We actually need to consume all of them and they have specific beneficial roles in pregnancy, which pokes a whole bunch of holes in this idea that we can eat hundred percent plant-based and really get everything that our body needs when we're growing a baby. So there's many, many different rabbit holes to go down with this topic, but Suffice to say, we got it very wrong with protein, and most people really can benefit from consuming more. And whether you want to go the really detailed data route, or you just want to go by like how you physically feel, which is also valid, just a mindful eating kind of perspective, test it out. Slowly ramp up your protein intake and see how you feel different. How is your mood? How is your energy? How soon are you hungry? If you're monitoring your blood sugar, how does your blood sugar respond? And that, that'll tell you pretty quickly wh- where your body, you know, operates optimally. Lily, you can go down any tangent and rabbit hole you want because they, that to me, like all of that, I could just, I was just raising my hand quietly like, yes, yes. <laughs> it's, it's just such a message that is not out there. And 
I can't tell you the number of times you'll hear someone say, oh, can't have too much uh, red meat or I can't mm-hmm. have too much protein or I can't. And there is this bigger picture correlation where our health as a world, as a nation, uh, in almost every population is getting worse. And how has vilifying a food that is extremely nutrient dense helped us? It, It has not. And I just think that without pointing any fingers and pointing it at myself, I guarantee if you would have surveyed me, you know, 10 plus years ago and And I don't think I would have known that protein was a nutrient dense food. Like I, I I just would not have known that because that's not the way I received it from everything around me. And here I thought I was decently healthy. Like I, you know, I was raised in a, a, you know, a good, healthy home. And here I think, oh, no, pursue my vegetables first. That's the first thing. And I just really love that you are bold enough to kind of say, we need to maybe challenge what we've always been told. And I've had a lot of guests on the show that share their perspectives, whether it's research-based or whether it's like you said, hey, I just feel a lot better. I'm noticing all of these other benefits because I'm pursuing protein a little bit more. So um, thank you for that. Seriously, I I just think that's such a powerful message. So let's move on. When women are pregnant and they are being told kind of very little dietary advice, like you said, you're kind of being told to stay away from alcohol, watch out for too much caffeine, and stay hydrated. I I really think those were the three I was told. Mm -hmm. What are some other things that you're like, hey, we, we talked about the one of the big ones, but what are some other things that you're hoping pregnant women hear out there? Messages that if on your dying day, you're like, if pregnant women heard this from me, I am, I am at peace. I, I want them to know this. Gosh, maybe I'll start with like the, the prenatal vitamin idea. I think a lot of professionals just sort of present a prenatal vitamin as like something that will cover all of their nutritional bases. And while I do agree that a prenatal vitamin is a, is a good insurance policy, there's a, a wide range of quality of prenatal vitamins. Not all are are created equal by far. Most of the ones I look over are total crap actually. (laughs) So, uh, you know, they're not created equal. There is no like specific guideline in the FDA that says like you have to meet certain parameters on certain nutrients or most optimal forms of nutrients that your body can readily utilize or anything like that. There's it, you could just make some random multivitamin that you don't test for potency and purity that has poor quality nutrients that are difficult to absorb or assimilate and call it a prenatal because there's no guidance around that. People don't, the, the general public doesn't know this. Second to that, there's a lot of different nutrients beyond a prenatal that are important that are often not included in prenatals, or if they are, they are not in sufficient quantities, either because it's expensive for the supplement company, or because it's a really bulky nutrient. It just takes up a lot of physical space in a capsule or a tablet, leading to a really high serving size. And like, nobody wants a high serving size. For better or for worse, by the way, if you want a comprehensive prenatal, it's going to be a lot of capsules. I'm just going to 
throw that out there. Um, but you often see prenatals that are low in some of these nutrients because they're bulky, especially things like choline and uh, minerals. And so what happens when you're not getting enough of those? And should we instead focus on, well, A, yes, a quality prenatal, but B, focus on food sources of these nutrients so we can fill in those gaps and acknowledge that nutrients in food don't exist in isolation. They're always in synergy with other nutrients. So like a good example of this is choline that I mentioned. That's a B vitamin-like compound that is really important for preventing neural tube defects, optimizing brain development, supporting placental function, and nutrient transfer across the placenta, supporting liver health, supporting brain health for mom as well. Choline is a very important nutrient. And our top two food sources of this, by the way, are egg yolks, the, the often maligned egg yolks because of their cholesterol content, and liver, ironically, also really high in cholesterol. Those are your best top two food sources of choline by far, if you look at nutrient databases. And choline's also found a lot in seafood products, like salmon. It just so happens that choline and the omega-3 fat known as DHA, also vital for fetal brain development, tend to coexist in foods. And choline assists with the transfer of DHA to the baby and the incorporation of DHA into the fetal brain, which supports brain and vision development. It's like nature new, <laughs> and it's just packaged together right for you. Um, another one is like, you know, women are concerned about avoiding anemia uh, in pregnancy. And the, the, you know, standard approach is just to prescribe an iron supplement. Well, anemia isn't always iron deficiency. It can be an iron utilization problem. It can also be a deficiency in different nutrients like folate or vitamin B12. And there's a whole host of nutrients that work together to support healthy red blood cell production that often just so happen to be packaged together in food. So you need your iron, you need vitamin A in its retinol form, you need B12, you need folate, you need riboflavin. I could go on. All of those nutrients together, I forgot copper, that's another really important one for iron utilization. These nutrients happen to be packaged in pretty high amounts in a really bioavailable form in liver. Uh, not everybody's favorite food, but highly, highly nutrient dense. I really I challenge you to find a food that's more nutrient dense. Like the only thing that comes close is maybe oysters or shellfish, but liver is still by far and above the, the, the most comprehensively nutrient dense food. And it's interesting that when you go back into the medical journals into like the early to mid 1900s, you find that they actually treated anemia with liver. We didn't have wow. like isolated iron supplements yet. We didn't have isolated vitamin B12. They didn't even identify folate until the 30s and didn't realize that folate could treat anemia until the mid-1940s. What did we do to treat anemia? We gave them liver. <laughs> it's like so wow. interesting because it has everything in there nutritionally to support healthy red blood cells production. So interestingly, liver is a food that, you know, a lot of women are, are warned against consuming during pregnancy for a number of reasons, whether that be a food safety issue or um, its content of vitamin A. 
but it is highly nutrient dense. It is safe in, in moderate quantities. I have a whole section on, on the benefits of consuming liver and its safety in, in chapter three of Real Food for Pregnancy. Um, and you can really, you can go like your whole pregnancy without needing iron supplements. I never took iron supplements either pregnancy because I was eating bioavailable sources of iron with all of its complementary nutrients for your body to utilize it. I can't say that you're going to get all of those things in the precise quantities in their best absorbed form in a prenatal. And you're definitely not going to find it in a really low quality prenatal vitamin. So we really need to be having a conversation more around food. Food is like less expensive than supplements. It's less wasteful than supplements. Your body can utilize the nutrients in there better than supplements. It's more accessible to the, the general person supplements. We just need people to be talking more about food. And so that's actually what I end up doing a lot of times. I'm not anti-supplement and I'll, I'll give people, you know, recommendations on things, but we, I'm always talking more about food because you can fill in so many of these gaps and lessen your need for expensive supplements just by eating more like your grandma or your great grandmother. Completely. And I love that you just bring it back to that because if you bring it back to the food, it can feel if you've kind of not been on your health journey for a while or you you feel like your information is outdated, it can feel overwhelming. But at the end of the day, Lily's message is actually very simple. Go back to the real whole food options and target and and find those nutrient dense foods that will serve you best. And it's interesting during my pregnancy, Lily, almost all of them I craved uh shellfish and oh, I I would have clams a lot. Now, I'm from the Pacific Northwest. We have wonderful access to seafood year yes. round. Interestingly enough, I can't tell you that ever people would be like, "Oh, are you going to eat that?" are you supposed to have shellfish when you're pregnant? <laughs> yada, yada. And I just would, I would totally say, yeah, I'm eating it. It's really yep. good for me. And I love it. And my body is telling me it wants it. And then I also eat a lot of fish, try to eat a lot of fish, but I would still have, you know, sushi and people are like, oh, yeah. that's so scary. And I don't know. I, I liver though, I need to eat more liver. I I love liver for its nutrient density. My mom eats it all the time. She swears by it. I need to get more creative on my recipes though. What is your way of consuming liver? Well, how do you like to have it? I mean, so, you know, I didn't grow up eating liver also just to go back to the seafood. I didn't grow up eating a lot of seafood either. So these are like foreign things for me as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, for liver specifically, if it's chicken liver, which are like very tender, I can do those pan fried. And I think those are yummy. So um, I do have like a, an e-cookbook over on my site that has like a savory chicken liver bites that are pretty yummy. And you, you know, you season them well and like bread them a little bit, fry them in butter. It's delicious. But if I'm not doing chicken liver, I'm usually... We do a, a grass-fed cow share, so we get like a whole animal or part of an animal that's all, you know, they, they package it up for you, of course. And I, I always request the organs and the bones, because when you eat nose to tail, you get a, a much more balanced array of nutrients than if you just eat, say, the steak or the ground beef. And so I get a lot of liver. I mean, the liver from a cow is is big, right? Um, so huge, I yeah. I make a big batch of liver pate 
a couple times per year, which is really simple. There's a recipe for it in Real Food for Pregnancy. I think there's actually one on my website as well. But it's essentially, you know, liver and onions, a lot of good spices, butter, cream, all pureed up. And then I package that in small containers, like small mason jars, four ounce mason jars, or in um, ice cube trays. And then I incorporate that into ground meat dishes. Now, some people will just like take liver and puree it like the day of when they're making a recipe. Like, I don't want to make a mess of my kitchen and deal with liver very often. So I just like do big batches of pate and freeze it. And then when it's time for me to make something like meatloaf or meatballs or chili or whatever, I not only get the ground beef out of the freezer to defrost, I get a couple like ice cubes or a jar of liver pate to mix into the recipe. And then it just it just literally like melts into it. If I'm making meatloaf, it just gets mixed right up with the ground meat. If I'm making chili, I just like drop a ice cube or two into the chili. You don't taste it. It adds kind of a richness of flavor to the dish, but it doesn't taste livery per se. Um, oh, I and, love that tip. I love that. Yeah. So I, I make it like that's that's how I do liver. I'm I'm not like a liver and onions type person. I could maybe do that with like chicken liver if I happen to be like really in the mood, <laughs> but like, usually <laughs> I just do the hidden liver um, as pate. I try to do it maybe once a week. So we might sort of rotate through doing like a meatloaf one week or a chili another week, a bolognese sauce another week. I have some yummy recipes for like uh, Indian spice stuffed bell peppers and some more interesting ways of doing it, but just hide it in ground meat dishes, some, some farms and um, like online places where you can purchase, you know, high quality meats will have like organ meat blends where it'll be like 85% ground beef, 15% liver and heart or something like ground up right into it. That's like, that's done for you. I've just, since I'm buying direct from a small farm, they, they don't have that available to me, but that's another great option for people to check out. It's not something you have to eat in like massive quantities every single day. I mean, it should be eaten in proportion to like when you get an animal, you get one one liver, right? So we don't need a ton, but it is like a it's like a multivitamin. It fortifies your diet immensely with nutrients. Um, and somewhat similarly to like you know shellfish, like you're saying, you know, highly nutrient dense. Like look up the iron and zinc and b12 and copper and selenium and iodine on shellfish it's like off the charts it's like amazingly nutrient dense you don't have to eat them every day but it is wise to have them in your diet you know maybe once a week or so um definitely beneficial you know it's interesting my brother was teasing me the other day because i said something about a study i was reading and how zinc is uh, helpful, especially what they're finding in, in some of our COVID-related concerns and different things. And I think I mentioned like taking some zinc or something. And my brother goes, bet, that's unlike you. Why don't you just eat some more shellfish? Like he was, <laughs> he was, he was teasing me. That here I was, yeah, I was like, well, well played, Jack. Well yes. played. Yes. Um, anyways, so I love all those tips and I love how you made it super real world too. And based on what your experience has been kind of sticking with this protein topic a little bit, what do you, do you like the references when people say, Hey, I want you to target this certain gram of protein a day, like 
maybe it's based on your ideal body weight. Maybe it's a ratio there. I've had some people say it's they want one-to-one to your ideal body weight. Or do you like when people pursue a certain percentage? Do you find that that's a better tactic? What what have you found is ideal? If, if you could have everyone do this when it came to protein and kind of trying to hit that target. So... I'm usually not like a big proponent of of tracking macros. I think protein is an exception where I feel like it's helpful to sit a, set a minimum goal for protein so people can actually like tally up how much they're eating in, in, in a day. A lot of times it's not coming up to optimal intake levels. Um, there are different ways of like, setting, you know, nutrient goals. There's, you know, RDA, which is based on like a gram per body weight measurement. There's also the acceptable macronutrient distribution range or AMDR. That's like a percentage of calories, which by the way, they're like wildly different. So like the RDA is set like at the very, very low end of the AMDR, but the AMDR actually goes up to 35% of your caloric needs, which is really high. That'd be very, very difficult to, to meet unless you're like eating like bodybuilder ratios of protein. But it just shows that like higher intake is like already built into the guidelines as being safe if people are concerned. I find that what's realistic for most people is, is calculating um, based on grams. Try to hit like a minimum gram amount And I do think it's best to have it based on body weight with some consideration for, you know, if you're really, you weigh a lot more than like your so-called ideal body weight or lean body Uh mass, you don't need to go like quite as high. You want to sort of base it on lean body mass if if you're at at a higher body weight, whereas like somebody in like, you know, a healthy BMI range, maybe just base it on your actual body weight. But it depends on like your life stage and your activity level. So in pregnancy, for example, if you want to do the math, the that 2015 research paper that I talked about earlier, they set the, um, now this is an estimated average requirement, so keep that in mind. It's not an RDA. I'm <laughs> getting into the weeds here, but an EAR is set to meet 50% of the population's needs. So an RDA would actually be set quite a bit higher than this, but they suggested an EAR of 1.22 grams per kilo for approximately the first half of pregnancy and for later pregnancy, um, aim for 1.52 grams per kilogram. You'll have to convert from pounds to kilogram to do that math. But to put it into real world terms, for a woman who weighs 150 pounds pre-pregnancy, you're looking at roughly hitting a minimum of about 80 grams per day in the first part of pregnancy and the latter half of pregnancy hitting closer to like 100, 105 grams per day. And again, that's that's like a minimum level because these are EAR calculations. Um, I think you could easily do more like 1.5 to 1.8 grams per kilogram. And that amount, I think, is also pretty appropriate for like a general um, fertility supportive diet as well, Um, potentially on the higher end if you're really athletic and you have a lot of muscle turnover from doing so much physical activity. Um, So that really, you know, we're talking probably 100 grams minimum for most people per day. If you're like a really small person, again, these can be based on body weight probably don't have to go quite up to 100 grams a day like if you're somebody who's like 
you know, five feet tall and like 90 Super pounds, you know, yeah. that's going to be different than a woman who's 5'11 and does CrossFit five days a week and weighs, I don't know how much you weigh at 5'11, but however much, 180, I don't know. Um, that's going to be wildly different in terms of like a gram amount. So I, I feel like just sort of setting a gram amount based on body weight and activity levels, and then sort of setting that as like a minimum goal, even if that's like the only thing you're looking at in your tracking, I think that's really helpful. Or you can just break it down to like a meal per meal amount, you know, take that total, split it into approximately three, maybe you account for snacks. Um, and so a lot of times you're looking at, you know, 25, 30 grams of protein. So you have to start thinking about it. It's like, okay, some people think, you know, eggs are a high protein breakfast and they are, but an egg has like maybe seven grams of protein. So, you know, I, for whatever reason, I grew up in a household where it was like your breakfast was one egg. And that was just like, that's what you get. And now as an adult, I'm like, that's not enough. Like I need to have like at least two and maybe like a side of sausage or something or have my like sourdough and put like peanut butter on it or add some collagen to my drink. Uh, you know, I, I'm now aiming for a lot more and you can, again, if we go back to like, you know, eating what makes you feel good, like track how you feel for a little while too. Okay. I had this for breakfast and I was starving an hour later. I guarantee you that meal was either like not enough protein or not enough calories. <laughs> right? Um, right. If you feel great for like three, four hours before you need to eat again, it was probably pretty well matched to what your body, you know, truly requires to be like energized and fueled. So you can use that as well, like as a sort of proxy outside of just the numbers. Yeah. One of my former guests, uh, Dr. Ted Naiman and I were talking about how he really likes to have people be protein forward and er in, in the day, kind of earlier in the day. And then it doesn't also send you on that roller coaster, you know, where yes. he's, he's all about, well, if you choose right, if you choose protein first and you are making sure to build your plate around that protein, you're much less likely to go raid that pantry or to be mm -hmm. ravenous or to be go on these blood sugar, you know, uh, spikes and roller coaster or however you want to put it. And I've really found that to be true. And I think that's sure. exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. That's exactly where, where you're saying you're saying find that protein and then see how you feel. Pursue that protein first. Back to your first message. Don't believe that protein is low nutrient. It's actually one of the highest nutrient foods we can pursue out there. So moving on, that kind of flows really well to gestational diabetes, blood sugars. I'm noticing it just feels like more and more people are struggling with gestational diabetes and they are people that think they're healthy and, and shouldn't have this problem or maybe they're unhealthy, and they, but they, they find this is an issue for them. What are you noticing is happening in that world? What is being told to these group of women who may got a diagnosis? Oh, you have gestational diabetes. What do you think is being told to them is outdated? What, what, do you, why, what do you think we're doing wrong and why are we seeing so much increase in this area? Yeah, well, let's, let's sort of rewind to like what gestational diabetes is because I think when people understand 
what it is, it's easier to envision the solution. So gestational diabetes is elevated blood sugar in pregnancy that is either first recognized or first developed during pregnancy. And these are two different things because first recognized means there could have been a pre-existing blood sugar issue going on that we didn't know, but we caught it in pregnancy. Whereas develops in pregnancy means there's something with what happened in pregnancy physiology and your body's adaptation to it that didn't go as planned. Because if everything goes as planned, your body actually tries to maintain normal blood sugar levels, which run about 20% lower than non-pregnant blood sugar levels. And so there's a reason that that adaptation like didn't happen. Now, from what I've seen, gestational diabetes is, first of all, the most common pregnancy complication by far. And depending on the diagnostic measures you use, it affects up to 18% of pregnancies. I've seen some newer research saying 22% of pregnancies. What I have seen, based on how we practice in clinic, which was screening first trimester hemoglobin A1C levels, which is a measure of your average blood sugar over the past three months. In other words, if you're checking in your first trimester, you're picking up pre-pregnancy average blood sugar levels as well. If those levels come up in the pre-diabetic range, we would treat as if it was gestational diabetes. This is built into the guidelines of the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, by the way, even though not everybody practices this way, but a lot of California does. So what we're really catching in a lot of cases is prediabetes. And diabetes as a whole across our population is extremely common and rates are rising. So as of 2015, 49 to 52% of Americans had some type of diabetes, mostly undiagnosed and mostly in like the prediabetes or type 2 diabetes um, spectrum of things, which is an issue of insulin resistance, essentially. And that's what gestational diabetes is. It's insulin resistance in pregnancy, also known as carbohydrate intolerance of pregnancy. That's literally how they refer to it in the research in some cases. So your body is unable to to tolerate large boluses of carbohydrates at one sitting without experiencing high blood sugar. So the solution, when you look at it from that angle, is really very simple. We just need to titrate your carbohydrate intake to a level that your body can manage, which might be less than somebody whose body is having no trouble processing carbohydrates, right? Mm -hmm. Fortunately, our guidelines, being what they are, recommend 45 to 65% of your calories come from carbs. Second Mm -hmm. to that, there's an arbitrary minimum level of carbohydrates recommended for pregnancy, which is set at 175 grams per day. I literally wrote my first book to debunk that recommendation, by the way. So real food for gestational diabetes is all about defending a real food diet that is lower in carbohydrates, richer in protein, and a whole bunch of other whole foods, which supply all the micronutrients that your body needs to manage your blood sugar and support optimal, you know, insulin sensitivity and whatnot. And specifically has a chapter defending the safety of a lower carbohydrate intake in pregnancy, because truthfully, that 175 gram number was really essentially pulled out of thin air. It has very, very low rigor of evidence to support its use. And I actually feel kind of vindicated because earlier this year, I was presenting at a diabetes educator conference in the Pacific Northwest. 
and presented, you know, the data on this. So I was doing, you know, revised literature review of everything that's out there. And there was actually a paper that came out, which came to essentially all the same conclusions that I came to in that like really researchy chapter of real food for gestational diabetes, <laughs> which is that there is no strong evidence to support a minimum of 175 grams of carbs per day. There's no strong evidence to suggest that um, occasionally being in nutritional ketosis as a result of eating low carb has any harmful effects on baby. And essentially we need to like allow women to choose their carbohydrate intake based on how much their body can handle. I mean, it said it in different words, but that was essentially the conclusion. It was like, finally, you know, like essentially I did this huge lit review and wrote a book for the general public on it. Finally, there's actually a research paper which pulled in all that same information and they came to the same conclusion that I did. And yet here we are, our guidelines still exist in the way that they do. If those guidelines would take into consideration, A, that data, B, you know, normal pregnancy physiology, which is that your body can easily go in and out of ketosis very safely during pregnancy and does so more readily than other life stages, by the way. Um, see if we understood micronutrient density of foods and saw that carbs are often our least micronutrient dense foods, meaning the, the more carbs you eat, the less micronutrients you consume as a whole because your carbs are displacing your proteins and your vegetables and your nuts and seeds and legumes and berries and avocados, all those other things that are low carb are much higher nutrient density than your grains, right? And as a whole in America right now, 85% of the grains consumed are refined. These things are not nutrient dense. They're yes, they're fortified with a handful of vitamins and some iron, but they are not nutrient dense. They spike your blood sugar like crazy and they take the place of much more nutritious foods. You know, like imagine a plate where you have a big bowl of pasta, super high carb, you know, refined flour product. And then you have like, uh, you know, your bolognese sauce or something. What about instead, hey, maybe even leave some pasta. Leave like a third of the pasta that you had before, but fill in the rest with broccoli or green beans or something. And then throw your bolognese sauce on there and then like have some hidden liver in that bolognese sauce. You know what happens? Like your blood sugar is happier. Your energy levels are better. Your micronutrient intake is better. By all measures, everything is better if we just keep displacing the refined carbs with more of the nutrient-dense foods. So that's exactly the approach that I, that I endorse for gestational diabetes. And we've seen it be wildly successful. The U.S. is still slow to you know, adopt it, although there are more clinics and diabetes educators and dietitians who are using it. But as of 2016, the Czech Republic, yes, that little country in, in Europe, um, adopted essentially my guidelines. So they reversed their gestational diabetes guidelines from being a minimum in their country was actually 200 grams per day. Now that's set at the maximum level. And since then, they've seen the rates of requiring insulin or medication for blood sugar management plummet. So it used to be about 50%, 40-50% of pregnancies. Now it's down to 10%. And that was the same as what I saw in clinical practice. And that's the same also as what the research says, which is that if you just reduce the glycemic index of the diet, you can have blood sugar spikes over the course of the day. And you can also have the risk of 
requiring insulin or medication, meaning cut in half a person's risk that their blood sugar is so high they require medication. No, we can just prevent the blood sugar spike, prevent the stress on the pancreas from having to pump out massive amounts of insulin just by reducing the carbs to a level that your body can handle. I mean, it sounds so simple and it's like so controversial. It's almost comical. It's comical that I've been like speaking on this topic for like almost a decade. I mean, I wrote Real Food for Gestational Diabetes in 2015. So you can imagine, rewind the clock. I had been doing that work a long time before I wrote the book. So it's like, I feel almost like a, you know, a robot saying the same thing over and over. And everybody who hears me is like, yes, yes, that makes sense. Yes. Like, God, that's strange when you think about how gestational diabetes is diagnosed with a glucose tolerance test. You know, you're going to give somebody 50 to 100 grams of glucose at one sitting and their blood sugar is high. And then we're going to turn around and give them a meal plan that has a minimum of like 50 grams or so of carbohydrates per meal and expect their body to be able to process it. Like it, it doesn't make sense even to like a preschooler. <laughs> so it's crazy yes. we're still doing this. It's just not logical. And then would you say too, did you see this in practice? I mean, I notice that sometimes when people will go in to get their uh, test done too, if they, the night before, before they started their fast or whatever, however long they fast, if they had a birthday party and they went through all the cake and they had all the treats and whatever, uh, a lot of people don't correlate that that also is that could affect your glucose test the next day. <laughs> like, For I don't sure. know if you've ever seen that, but um, a lot of people just don't understand that all these things and how they're related. But if you just take a step back and you're like, oh, that that makes that makes too much sense. That's what I want to say. That just makes too much sense, Lily. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, 100%. Our blood sugar levels are always in flux. And so, you know, if anybody's have had any experience testing their blood sugar at home or especially using a continuous glucose monitor, you can really see the real-time variations. Eventually, I hope something like that, you know, long-term monitoring of blood sugar replaces these like single point tests, which are subject to either a risk of false positive or false negatives. We have yet to get to that point. It's going to take a lot of work because really most of the data is on diagnosing with a glucose tolerance test, but the results are so can be so skewed by a number of factors. And a bit perplexing for some people is if they eat low carb and then go into one of those tests, you're more likely to fail. And meaning your your blood sugar will come out high. And that's because your your pancreas adapts to what your body does on a day-to-day -day basis. So if you always eat low carb, you don't produce as much insulin and you don't release as high of amounts of insulin in response to a, a huge influx of sugar because your body isn't adapted to it. Whereas if you're somebody who like has a Jamba Juice smoothie every day, which has, it's basically a glucose tolerance test. It's, you know, like <laughs> 70 plus grams of sugar. Your pancreas is going to be pretty well adapted unless there's significant insulin resistance, unless you've been doing it for like five, 10 years straight, your body will be able to handle that with like a really high bolus of insulin. Is that ideal? No, no. <laughs> that's yeah. also not ideal. 
But that is something to consider if you are going to agree to do a glucose tolerance test and you do eat low carb. I mean, I personally argue for if, if you're in that situation for doing some sort of alternative like home glucose monitoring. However, if you're going to choose to do a glucose tolerance test, the research shows you need to carb load for like at least a week prior you want to be eating at least 150 grams of carbs a day so that your pancreas is at this point in time adapted to high carb, even if you're going to go lower carb after the fact. Again, I don't think that's like ideal. I don't think it's like a measure of health really to like be able to handle huge boluses of carbs with huge boluses of insulin. I mean, that's eventually how we end up with prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. And there's an interesting study in... Um, pregnant horses that looked at horses that were fed grains versus horses that were on their standard diet, which is like alfalfa and hay, grains essentially. And then they gave them glucose tolerance tests. And guess which horses passed the glucose tolerance test? The ones given grains. And I guess I would have, like until you just talked about this though, I would have been so dead wrong, Lily, because I would have said, oh, the week before your glucose test, you want to make sure you're not going too crazy on all the carbs. But literally, I'm like, oh, I never right. thought about it this way. I, But I love that you're, I love that you talk about blood sugar monitoring. And I really believe like you that that is where we need to be going and we need to be departing from this sugar uh, you know, glucose test and, and instead just be much more knowing of our body and our blood sugars and we would all benefit from it. I, yes. I've been, I've had so much fun getting to know mine and I, I really owe that to my friend Marty Kendall and he's a big proponent of uh, using blood sugars and he created this program called Data Driven Fasting. You use them to dictate when you eat. So effectively, you start to learn your trends and different things. But where I'm going is, like you said, the fact that we don't know our blood sugars and we're we're kind of using this isolated moment on the glucose test, there's a lot of room for error, whether positive or negative mm-hmm. error. Yep. And, uh, and now, do you, do you find that when you are helping clients and, and people out there, when they start to get to know their blood sugars... I bet they are positively taking steps forward because I, they learn. you learn so much by oh, yeah. doing it. Absolutely. You learn a ton. So a glucose tolerance test, you kind of don't really learn anything other than how does your body process this isolated amount of pure glucose. As somebody who did do the glucose tolerance test my first pregnancy and failed by a point, despite being like, ridiculously metabolically healthy, like all measures of insulin resistance, fasting insulin, average glucose, on and on, leptin, adiponectin, all wonderfully perfect. My body wasn't adapted to the sugar. I was actually testing it out for myself to be like, are they really true about you need to carb load before this? Because they they took that off the recommendations after the general average American was eating so many carbs. <laughs> so I found out the hard way. Uh, yes, indeed, that's a problem. I, I wrote about it on my blog. If you look up on my uh, lilynicholsrdn.com, I failed the glucola. You can read about that. And then later read about my CGM experiments. That one, I was I was not pregnant at the time, but I did wear CGM during my, my second pregnancy when they were more widely available as they are now. And I mean, I think for both, I can speak for myself and for my clients, it is 
absolutely empowering to see data on how your body responds to different foods. And in some, in some aspects, like for myself, I've been able to figure out for myself personally, which carbs does my body process well and which carbs are cause more of a blood sugar spike. Um, so I, I'm personally not a person who needs to eat like a ketogenic level of carbs. And I feel great not eating a ketogenic level of carbs, by the way, which surprises people when they hear me talking about low carb so much. But I've learned with CGM, you know, certain fruit, oatmeal, white rice, juice, of course, spikes me a lot. But I can have like some potato in a moderate amount, like cooked in like good quality fats, like lard or butter or something like that. Um, alongside a protein rich meal, my blood sugar is really happy. My body's happy. My blood sugar is happy. Same goes for like homemade sourdough bread. You know, I, I tend to not be a big proponent of eating lots of grains, but in the context of like fermented, properly fermented, soured whole grain bread, um, some people's bodies can handle it just fine. And so it's kind of reassuring to be like, oh, look, I can have you know, a piece of sourdough with my eggs and veggies at breakfast and my blood sugar is excellent. And I'm actually more energized and feel better and it's not having a detrimental effect on my body. Um, compared to, I don't feel quite as well when I'm only doing, like if I'm going full, like a keto type breakfast. And I do rotate through those, but it's also nice to like, on the days I want bread, it's like, yeah, you can have some bread. Your blood sugar will be fine. So if anything, it's it's empowering for me. Yet I know like, a fruit smoothie is a blood sugar disaster and oh, that breakfast of oatmeal, no matter how much, you know, fat and protein and fiber I try to fit in there with, you know, chia seeds and peanut butter and collagen protein, you name it. My blood sugar is still a disaster and I still don't feel as well eating that breakfast as I do eating something like eggs and veggies, maybe with a piece of sourdough with lots of butter on it. Like that feels great. So for me, it's like, you're just learning information about your body. Somebody else might have totally opposite um, blood sugar impact on specific carbs than I do. Like, yes, generally speaking, you know, carbs raise your blood sugar. And so you want to eat them at a level that your body can handle. And so you can sort of just look at a general list and get an idea of things that raise your blood sugar and don't raise your blood sugar. But there's a lot of individual variation on how much your blood sugar is going to spike um, related to specific types of carbs. And the, the research shows that too. There's just like some people spike more from a banana than they do a chocolate chip cookie. And for other people, it's the opposite. <laughs> so it's really interesting. Yeah. And I think the takeaway there is that no matter who you are, but especially pregnant women out there, if you are feeling like this is an area that that you need to educate yourself on, wearing a, a CGM or I even just do the contour next one and I just do, you know, pinpricks every once in a while. It does not hurt. I don't think so, but some might think so. And it's just fascinating to learn. I also like what exercise, certain exercises like spike your spike your blood sugars a lot. Certain exercises don't, you know, going on a long walk, you know, doesn't spike my blood sugar. But if I do a really intense CrossFit workout, 
I definitely see a spike. It's just, it's fascinating. And not all, not all spikes are bad. Right. That's just a physiological response to your body, you know, breaking down glycogen and releasing glucose to fuel your muscles. If anything, it's a, you know, it's a positive uh, spike, but you have to know like what's triggering it to be able to decipher, like, is that an issue? Is that not an issue? Totally. Well, I have, I have seriously, we could talk for hours, Lily. And I, if anyone who is a regular listener here knows that I just am fascinated by, by these topics. And so I love tackling them, but I want to be respectful of your time. And you've given me so much today. The only area that I feel that I've kind of, I would be wrong to not just quickly tackle if you have time for is my breastfeeding moms. I get DM after DM after DM from these breastfeeding moms saying, help. I want to lose the baby weight. And I know for some people that's a bad term. For some people, no, it's just acknowledging that maybe I gained a little extra weight during pregnancy and I'm looking to maybe not get my pre-baby body back, but I'm looking to lose some of my baby weight. I am struggling to figure out what works. And I provided many episodes on here on tips that I've, you know, uh, implemented in my, on my journeys and also advice to just, uh, be, be grace giving to ourselves and not be too hard on ourselves and realize we just birthed a human. What do you find is helpful? What do you think would be helpful out there? And what do you find when those breastfeeding moms come to you? Because a lot of the moms I talk to too, they know I, I intermittent fast. So they're like, when can I start intermittent fasting? When can I do this? help me. I'm a breastfeeding mom and I don't know what to do. Lily, what would you say to them? Well, I think it depends on the woman's goals with breastfeeding. Like, do you want to continue breastfeeding? Is keeping your supply up important? Um, What stage are you at with breastfeeding? So are you like two weeks postpartum? Are you nine months postpartum? Are you 18 months postpartum? Uh, You know, where, where are you at? Um, Because speaking to the woman who wants to continue breastfeeding long-term and does not want to sacrifice her supply, that conversation is different than somebody who's like breastfeeding an older baby who's eating a whole bunch of solids at this point and nursing is more of a comfort and you're not really concerned if your supply is going to dip at that point, right? So that's a different, there's just a different conversation, different goals. But to speak to somebody who's like early postpartum, and frustrated with where they're at with their weight. I I think we need a a complete reframe on postpartum recovery, especially in in the West, Um, because a lot of cultures, there was like a significant amount of time for rest and recovery. Like the most intensive period was usually in the first six weeks, approximately 40 days. And that holds true in cultures like across the globe. So first of all, give yourself a, a, you know, Six weeks is just the beginning, by the way. That's the time for most intense rest. I hope you're not stepping on the scale or trying to squeeze into jeans before that six-week mark is up. Just give yourself time to rest and nourish. Going back to our protein conversation, lots of your protein-rich foods, which are your most nutrient-dense foods, 
which really help with your appetite regulation and blood sugar regulation. So definitely focus on those. As far as like losing weight, but still maintaining your milk supply, because I think that was sort of the implied question. So I'm just going to go with that is like, I, I would really focus on your nourishment first with, again, an emphasis on the protein and the foods that keep you most satisfied you don't have to omit all carbs, but if you're in a if you're in the situation where you're just constantly hungry and ravenous, which is pretty common in breastfeeding moms, and I can say I you know I've been there um, twice, more so in my first when I wasn't as intentional with my protein. By the way, so if you just feel like you want to eat everything under the sun, you're probably not eating enough food, and specifically not enough protein not enough fat. Those those would be the most important places for me to, to focus. Another thing would be enough fluids with electrolytes. Um, a lot of women notice if they don't eat enough salt specifically, their supply tanks. So enough salt. And again, a lot of these things are just taken care of if you think about the way that we nourished moms traditionally, which was like lots of rich soups and stews. So you got your fluids you got your protein, you got your salt and minerals all in there. Um, great for your recovery, great for your milk supply, great for your healing. Other than that, I think um, you also, to give a nod to the giving yourself grace, is that there's a wide variation in, in weight loss uh, postpartum. So some women lose the weight relatively quickly. Sometimes it takes a little longer. Sometimes it's different pregnancy by pregnancy. Sometimes it takes you know, nine months. So the idea of nine months on nine months off, I think is a helpful thing to just have in the back of your brain instead of, I don't know, I feel like some people want to lose the weight in like a month. And that just doesn't always happen. Sometimes it happens naturally, sometimes it doesn't. Um, and then some women, you know, hormonally, their their body wants to hang on to a little extra weight for the entirety of their breastfeeding journey. And so yes. that's another consideration. And just to add a little like personal anecdote, because I think there's so much focus on weight. And believe me, like, you know, I, I've been there where you're like, oh, when is my body gonna like go back to normal? You know, <laughs> just like yes. we get impatient with ourselves. Um, and it doesn't like always go back entirely to like pre pre-pregnancy body, but you know, to to get back into a body that you can recognize maybe. Um, of course we all want that. And and I could just say, you know, my first pregnancy, my first postpartum, I did lose the weight quickly without trying. I think I was just overstressed because you don't know what you're doing when it's your first kid. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> uh, compared to my second, I, I held on to the weight a little bit longer, a couple months longer. And I felt so much stronger, had so much more energy, was so much more at ease, focused so much more on just like making sure I was really well nourished. I mean, I like started stocking the freezer at 20 weeks of my pregnancy, you can look up, I have a blog post on uh, postpartum recovery meals with, you know, 50 plus recipes I link out to because I think preparing for postpartum is like, cannot be understated in its importance. But even though my weight loss was slower the second time around, I was really happy that it was slower because I felt so much better. So mm. we kind of have to like pick and choose our battles here, you know, like, is your goal a really solid recovery plus continuing to breastfeed uh, long-term? Because if so, 
you're going to require a lot of energy, a lot of nutrients to build up your nutrient stores and like sustain yourself through this very intensive period, which is caring for a newborn. Is your goal to not continue to breastfeed and you don't care about your supply? I mean, I still think the recovery part is important, but if, if you're not interested in breastfeeding long-term, we don't have the added concern of, is this nutritional choice going to affect your supply? Because you've made a decision that you don't want to continue breastfeeding anyways, which is an okay choice. I don't want to say one is better than the other. If that's the case, I think still focus on your recovery, but you could be a little more aggressive in implementing things to enhance your weight loss, like intermittent fasting, for example. Um, or going like significantly uh, lower carb, where some of those things could compromise your supply if you're continuing to nurse. Do I think doing those things really early postpartum is wise for anyone, regardless of whether they're breastfeeding? Probably not. I'd probably still put those things off till maybe six months postpartum. So you can just have a really solid period of of nutrient repletion. Um, But your choices are going to be different based on like if you're concerned about your supply or not. I think your answer just really is so amazing because it's it's in the exact message I think the breastfeeding moms need to hear out there. Because like I said, I there's probably that's probably the most thing I get DMs on. Interesting. So Lily, it's really fascinating. Huh. I and I'm always like, okay, um, this is this is what I'm doing, and they all know that you know, pre my last baby that I was intermittent fasting, pre my baby before that. And so they're like, so now what are you doing and how are you doing it? And this is a topic for a different day, but I, all my breastfeeding journeys got kind of easier with every baby I Mm -hmm. had, but I got really humbled on this last time around. So the the listeners know I had some weird things with breastfeeding this time that I actually had to stop breastfeeding really early. And that was not my plan. My plan was very different. Wow, um, yeah. Especially for my sixth. I hear I am home more. I'm not traveling as much for my job. And it was really humbling to have to say, okay, this is wasn't my plan, but this is what is happening. And I shared really candidly with my listeners and, and people on social media that I, as a result, could I started intermittent fasting sooner this time yes. around. Not because I really wanted to, actually. Right, right. <laughs> this wasn't my, this wasn't like, oh, I, I but as a result, I also wanted people to know that as a result, I did lose my baby weight probably faster this mm. time around. Even though I hate saying that because I never want to discourage someone from breastfeeding right. as, as long as they want. But I do believe my body is the last body type you mentioned, where until I'm really done breastfeeding, my body does kind of holds on to the last kind of 10 pounds. Mm-hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. And then once my hormones kind of, I would say one to three months after I'm fully done breastfeeding, then my hormones kind of, kind of settle into this place. And then I lose, I typically would, um, let go of a few more pounds, but I wanted to share that because I felt it was important that people knew that, that was a reason I was losing weight, not because I wanted it to be this positive message, but I wanted to give grace to those breastfeeding moms who feel like they weren't seeing the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's it's like our bodies are all different. Yes. You know, with my first, I lost the weight right away without trying. It was just like, 
lost the weight. And some of this has to do with the amount of weight gain during pregnancy. That is a consideration. So I was, you know, gaining within, within the, the recommended range for, for my BMI. So I didn't have like extra hanging around, but then I also felt like my body was so like overworked in producing milk. I mean, you're already burning like 500 calories per day. And I had a pretty long labor, like almost a day, which is not, not I mean, there's lots of people who have longer labor than that, but still like almost 24 hours of labor. I had, a, I had to recover from like a marathon, you know what I mean? So I felt yes. like my body was just pulling everything it possibly could. Um, and I was eating as much as I could, but I was just starving, ravenous, and the weight came off really fast. And the second time around, I had a much easier birth, wasn't nearly as long, only a few hours. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't run a marathon before giving birth, right? I mean, birth is intense, but it was shorter and not as difficult. And I was so intentional about that protein. Still, for whatever reason, I don't think it was anything I did nutritionally. My body just took a few few extra months. I don't even know because I didn't get on the scale, but maybe like two or three months to get down to baseline. So I'm somebody whose body type will lose the weight, even though I'm nursing. I mean, I'm still nursing my two-year-old now, but other people have a different, like their hormones are different. Their body is different. We need to really like embrace that, like across the spectrum of like, our bodies are different, but still nourishment comes first. And for that like intermittent fasting thing question or like going, you know, lower carb, incorporating those things when you're later on in your breastfeeding journey can work for some people without affecting their supply. Like some people are more sensitive to that. Whereas other women, like their, their bodies just, they, their their milk supply changes really drastically based on what they're eating or the frequency of their eating. So it's kind of one of those things you have to sort of go into it with eyes wide open and play around with it, but also just acknowledge that like, even if you do, like, are you doing this because you want to do it because it'll make you feel better, give you better energy? Are you doing it because like, you just really hate your body right now? I think we have to be like honest about that, you know? Yes. Because it's hard. Like it's hard when your body changes with pregnancy. It is hard. You have to like, it takes a while. I mean, you know, you have six children, so I'm sure your body has changed every time in in different ways. And um, there is a period of adjustment and things do continue to change over time. I was even talking to my mom, you know, now grandma, and she's like, it's just funny that we always think about trying to maintain a certain type of body. Your body is going to change every year for the rest of your life. And I was like, you know, (laughs) that's a good reframe because it does change and not necessarily in, in a bad way. It's just different. We're not all meant to look like, you know, an 18 year old girl when we're in our 20s and 30s and 40s. Like, we're just not, and that's okay. Yes, I love that. You know, a a mantra that really helped me when I was postpartum uh, this last time around is I just keep kept saying strong, not skinny. And Mm, um, not that being at a healthy body weight is bad, but I think when we pursue strength, and pursue strong, not skinny, we make such better choices, whether that's food that nourishes us, getting outside and moving our body for the right reasons. And it's a positive reframe, like you said. And I found I was making such better decisions when I said, is this to make me strong or is this to make me skinny? And I think That can be really helpful if anyone's struggling with their postpartum body. I think take baby steps every day towards strength 
And strength doesn't mean always have to be in these huge muscles, but it can mean uh, that nourishing soup that you described. It can be a nap. It can be getting outside in the sun and walking. And those are strength steps, not skinny steps in my mind. Yes. So Lily, after today's amazingly informational interview, where is the best people can find you, support you, buy your books, all the things? Yeah, so you can find my work at lilynicholsrdn.com. Up on my site, I have links to everything. So there's my blog that has like 250 plus articles. We talked about if you search little, use the little search bar, search protein, you'll pull up an article on that. (laughs) Search postpartum recovery, you'll pull up an article on that. There's lots of information on there for free. I also have the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free up there for anybody who wants to dive into that before buying. I have a link out to my bookshop up there where you can purchase um, Real Food for Pregnancy in paperback or ebook and also my e-cookbook. You can also find my books on Amazon, of course, and many other bookstores. Um, as far as social media, I am most active these days on Instagram, and my handle's the same as my website, so Lily Nichols RDN. And let me see if there's anything else. If you're a practitioner, healthcare practitioner, we do have like professional level webinars over at the Women's Health Nutrition Academy. That all links out from my website um, under the services tab. So just take a little minute to explore on there through the different links and it'll it'll get you to every place that you need. Well, before we end, I have to give a shout out to one of my uh, Motivate Facebook group members, Monica McCann, because she was the one who told me about you, Lily. And I am ever so grateful to have found you and now get to learn from you and with you. And my last question of the day is, what is the bold advice you would like to leave with our listeners as we close today? I'll keep it simple. Micronutrients over macronutrients. I love that. And I think that came through today so beautifully. And I actually think that that's a good reminder for me because I think sometimes we do really focus on macros. And and really, like you said, the if you focus on the micronutrients, the macros fall into place. Exactly. Not that it's bad to focus on macros too. I mean, they matter, but the most nutrient dense macros will fill your micros. I guess you can look at it from either perspective, but better quality food. Better quality food. Amen. Well, thank you, Lily, for your time today. I appreciate you so much. Enjoy those babies. (laughs) You can probably hear them in the background. (laughs) So thank you so much. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to write a review and push that subscribe button. I also hope you will come hang out with me on Instagram, Facebook, and my new website, betlucas.com. And remember friends, be you boldly. The world needs you.